0: you would open your Bibles with me to John chapter uh, 12. As you are uh, turning there, uh, a paradox is a a statement uh, or a a proposition that that seems self-contradictory or or absurd, but in reality expresses a a possible truth. So a a short line at the DMV uh, sounds like a paradox. Is that possible? Uh, right? it's, a, it's a hypothetical, uh, and it sounds contradictory, but it, it is a possible truth. And there, there are several uh, paradoxes uh, in Christian life and in Christian uh, theology, uh, truths that are are hard to, to grasp uh, and understand, but when uh, studied carefully, they do uh, harmonize. Some of these include uh, the, the tri-unity uh, of God, uh, that God exists eternally in uh, Three persons, but there is one God. Another one of these paradoxes is the, the complete deity and humanity of Christ. Uh, he is truly God and truly man. Another paradox, uh, the sovereignty of God in salvation, and yet uh, man is still responsible. Uh, each of these paradoxes can be harmonized. Uh, but there's a, another a paradox that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, and it has to do with our salvation in Christ and that our salvation in and of itself seems to be uh, a a little bit of a paradox. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, on uh, the one hand, uh, salvation in Christ is absolutely free. Uh, But on the other hand, at the same time, it is very costly. Salvation is offered uh, freely to everyone. Uh, The the message of the gospel uh, is extended to all. Uh, And in the uh, words of Isaiah uh, 55, 1, it says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So what's the price? It's free. Come get it. The Bible says that, that every person who has ever lived... Uh, is a, a sinner. that uh, We have all wandered away from God. Now we are all in need of forgiveness and reconciliation with the God that we have rebelled against. And salvation is offered freely to anyone who comes. And it's offered on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if you look to Jesus in faith, you can be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. You are brought into fellowship with God. And this is entirely free. And this aspect of our salvation is often referred to uh, as justification. That we can be uh, declared uh, legally righteous before God. The the sin debt that we owed uh, is paid in full. And when God now looks at us, uh, we are uh, clean. Uh, We are uh, righteous because Christ's righteousness has been uh, attributed to us. He took our sin and we get his righteousness. And there was no cost to us for that. Uh, And in that sense, salvation is absolutely free. But in in what sense is it costly? Well... uh, Uh, there's uh, another reality, another portion of salvation that you might call sanctification. Once we have been justified, once uh, Christ uh, has uh, declared us to be righteous uh, through our faith, uh, then it begins a a lifelong journey of growing and becoming uh, like Him. We are uh, growing in holiness. We are, are solely uh, but surely setting aside all of the, the old manners uh, and ways of uh, living before we knew Christ. Uh, and we are gradually walking more and more as he walked. Uh, and this is why, as Jesus was, was teaching the crowds on a, on a regular basis, he called them to count the cost uh, of following him. So on the one hand, he's saying everybody should come and and follow me. But on the other hand, uh, be be careful about what that means. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, uh, he he was saying to them all, speaking to the crowd, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Later on in Luke's gospel, chapter 14, uh, speaking about uh, this uh, necessity of uh, Counting the cost of following Jesus. He says this, "...for which of you, when, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, "...this man began to build and was not able to finish." So Jesus is saying we we must do that ahead of time. We must understand uh, if we are going to to follow Jesus, what is the significance of that? Now, what does that mean? If you are going to to follow Jesus, you will be changed. He's not going to to leave you as you are uh, or uh, as you were. He's going to, to change you and transform you. Uh, he, he wants to uh, to set you to work, no longer working and living for yourself, but uh, but laboring for Him. So, your salvation in Christ, on the one hand, is free; your justification in Christ is free, but your your sanctification is very costly. And this is the paradox of salvation in Christ. Once you're saved, uh, it's going to cost you. Everything and, and this is an aspect of discipleship uh, that is oftentimes uh, left out, It's kind of conveniently pushed to the sides of the gospel, right And, and that's easy to understand because it's easier to uh, to proclaim something that is free than something that is very costly. And John Stott, a pastor and theologian, says this. Uh, about the, the need to count the cost of following Jesus, he says that the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish for thousands of people uh, still ignore christ 's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. and the result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so called nominal Christianity. Now in countries uh, to which Christian civilization has spread large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity they have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved uh, enough to be respectable but not enough to be uncomfortable now their religion is a great soft cushion it protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience no wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the churches and dismiss religion as escapism. And, and that's not just a, uh, a 21st century phenomenon. Uh, th- this reality of half-built towers, Jesus warned against it in the, the first century. Uh, we see it around us in the 21st century. Uh, listen to the words of a, a 19th century pastor, Horatius Bonar. He says, if you are Christians, be consistent. Be Christians out and out, Christians every hour in every part. Beware of half-hearted discipleship, of compromise with evil, of conformity to the world, of trying to serve two masters, to walk in two ways, the narrow and the broad at once. It will not do. Half-hearted Christianity will only dishonor God while it makes you miserable. And I think many of us at times feel miserable in our walk with Jesus precisely because of that. Uh, we are, we're torn, right? Now, on the one hand, we say we want to, to follow Christ. But on the other hand, we want what we want. And we, we want to go our own way. Uh, and so we are uh, a double-minded man. Uh, and we need to to seek for wisdom. And we need to understand what Christ is calling us to. But as we come to John 12, Jesus has some words of exhortation and encouragement for everyone who would follow him in faith. John chapter 12, which we've been studying the last few weeks, uh, brings us to the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry. Now, we saw in verses 12 to 19, uh, we saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. uh, And he was heralded by a great crowd. Uh, welcoming him in as uh, the Messiah that they wanted him to be, a a conqueror. Uh, They wanted him to to come in and defeat Rome. Uh, But rather than than riding in uh, on a a war horse, Jesus rode in on a donkey. uh, He is here for, for peace, not for war. In verse 19 of John 12, we saw the Pharisees responding to the celebration uh, surrounding Jesus' entrance into the city. And uh, they, uh, they made a, a statement, a uh, slight exaggeration, but also prophetic, as we saw. It says, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And in verses 20 to 22, we saw that the first stages of that reality, because they say the whole world is going after him. And then in verse 20, we see uh, that there are some Greeks, some Gentiles uh, who are coming to see Jesus. They, they want uh, an audience with him. Uh, this is the, the foreshadowing, the very beginnings of salvation going to the ends of the earth. And then in in response to the Gentiles beginning to to come to him in verse 23, Jesus responds to this request for an interview uh, with a proclamation that his long-awaited hour had finally come. uh, That his time to be glorified uh, had arrived. Uh, And then he also signified more. Now what we're going to jump into this morning in verse 24 through 26 uh, is immediately picking up where where we left off last week. So so we stopped abruptly uh, kind of mid paragraph uh, but we're jumping back down into uh, this explanation of the hour uh, for Jesus or the for the son of man to be glorified has arrived. And then Jesus says this if you would uh, read with me in verses 24 through 26 Jesus says, truly truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servants will also or will be also and if anyone serves me the father will honor him and in these verses what we see is that the cost of following jesus jesus is going to uh, to proclaim his hour has arrived but it's not an hour of conquering it's uh, the, the time for him to die and then what he's going to, to lay out, the immediate connection, he says it's time for him to die, and then it's time for everyone who follows him to do what? To go and, and do likewise, uh, to, to follow in the footsteps of Christ. What we, what we see here are patterns of discipleship. Now, What does it mean uh, to be a disciple of Jesus? And disciple is simply a, a learner, uh, somebody who, who follows after a teacher, who learns from them and adheres to what the teacher has taught. That's what Jesus is going to to lay out for us. Four clear patterns of Christian discipleship. Patterns that we must know, that we must uh, believe wholeheartedly, and and patterns that we ultimately need to conform to uh, as disciples, as Christians. The first of these patterns is, is seen in verse 24. The, the pattern of a disciple's salvation you could say that that death precedes life jesus said in that verse truly truly i say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit uh, and this is an explanation of of uh, the glory that jesus is speaking about his glory is uh, his death and he points to, to the reality of uh, a seed in nature, right? That kernel uh, only uh, grows into a crop and a harvest if it goes into the soil, uh, it is covered there, it, it decays and dies, and it becomes something new and greater. And Jesus is saying that he must die so that there can be a great harvest of souls. Now, the death of Christ is necessary for the salvation of the world. And there is no salvation apart from Jesus going to the cross to suffer and die to pay the penalty for sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Colossians 1 Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Salvation only comes through the death of Jesus. And, and he is pointing here to the reality that his death is going to lead to life for all who would believe in him. Now, this is the harvest that will be reaped. Now, there are uh, giant sequoia trees which are, are found on uh, the western slopes of the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains. Many of you have probably gone to, uh, to visit these trees. And if you haven't gone, I would encourage you to because they are absolutely massive and mesmerizing. It's always good to go visit some, something or some uh, uh, majestic landscape that makes you feel about this big, right? When you feel that on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you feel that when you go and stand next to these sequoia trees. Uh, some of these sequoia trees can be uh, 35 feet wide uh, with bark. The outer bark is 18 inches thick, and some of the branches of these trees uh, are 8 feet in diameter, The tallest sequoia is 379 feet tall. Think about that. It's a very, very, very tall tree. Uh, And General Sherman uh, is the world's largest organism. General Sherman is one of the name of the the biggest trees. And it's weighed an estimated 2.7 million pounds. And since these trees never stop growing until they die, and because their their outer bark has been created by God specifically uh, to withstand fire, which is kind of important in California, right? And these trees, because they never stop growing and their outer bark is uh, created to withstand fire, uh, these trees end up living uh, for thousands of years. Uh, The the oldest one alive today has been uh, dated back... uh, 3,200 years. And the oldest sequoia on record is 3,500 years old. And their seeds are tiny, about the, the size of a grain uh, of, of oatmeal. Uh, but, but these seeds are enclosed in a, a cone, similar to like a pine cone. And what's interesting is that cone will only open up to release uh, the seeds when it has been scorched by fire and the the seeds themselves will only germinate and begin to grow in soil that is mineral-rich because it has just been scorched by fire. These greatest of all trees will only grow through the process of fire sweeping through a forest. Death must come before life for the sequoia, and this is the same pattern of salvation given to us here by Jesus. Now our salvation comes as a result of His death, but then, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to die to self and to live for Him. Again, Luke nine twenty three. If anyone wishes to come after Him, what must we do? Deny ourselves, take up our cross. Uh, and, and the idea of taking up the cross w- w- when when Jesus was carrying his cross, where was he going? Where was he walking to his death? Uh, when he says, "Get ready to carry your cross," he's calling us to be willing willing to to live and die for him, and we are to follow his earthly footsteps. Galatians chapter two, verse twenty, my, my favorite verse: "I have been crucified with Christ." It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, right? I died, and now I'm alive, but I'm alive in Christ. And the life that I now live by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Death and then life. J.C. Ryo puts it this way, Truths such as these should sink deeply into our hearts and stir self-inquiry. It is as true of Christians as it is of Christ. There can be no life without death. There can be no sweet without bitter. There can be no crown without a cross. Without Christ's death, there would have been no life for the world. Unless we are willing to die to sin and crucify all that is most dear to flesh and blood, we cannot expect any benefit from Christ's death. Uh, This is the pattern of discipleship. This is the pattern of a disciple's salvation, that when we are made alive in Christ, we die to self. Uh, and, and we don't die to self in, in attempting to earn our salvation, right? Our justification, our salvation comes uh, on the basis of uh, faith in Christ. Uh, our, our dying to self is not what saves us. Our dying to self is a response to what Jesus has already done on our behalf. And salvation is free. Discipleship is costly. Justification costs us nothing, but sanctification costs us everything. And this is the pattern of Christian discipleship. And, and it's it's worthwhile to ask of all of these patterns that we're looking at: Is this the pattern that I myself am living out? Is this the pattern that I myself am putting on display? To all of those around me? Is this what I am uh, putting on display uh, to my co-workers, to my neighbors, to my spouse, to my children? Uh, What pattern of discipleship, what pattern of the gospel are you putting on display? We have to think about that and compare it to what Jesus is holding up for us here. This first pattern of Christian discipleship is that death precedes life. Second pattern, verse 25 now, the pattern of a disciple's affections, namely that we are to deny self and prefer Christ. If you look again at that verse with me, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So in, the, in this verse, Jesus is going to, to make a sharp contrast. We're going to see two uh, people who are in view here with two different affections, and we're going to see two different outcomes of of what their affections lead to. The first person is one who loves his own life, literally uh, loves his own soul. And what Jesus is meaning there is that person gives first place, first priority to his own self-interest. To summarize, this person worships himself. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 19, uh, Paul speaks about some who, he says, whose God is their appetites. Uh, Whatever they feel like doing, that's what they do. Uh, So their, their whole life is oriented around whatever they're desiring in the moment. And a person who constantly pursues their own passions, their own desires and ambitions, what Jesus says here, that person is going to end up losing their soul. Uh, but actually, the, the, the Greek term that's uh, translated in the English as "lose" is actually a, a bit stronger than that. The same word is is translated uh, back in uh, chapter 11, verse 50, as "perish." The same Greek word is translated in John 3:16 as "perish." Uh, the idea is a, of ruining or destroying someone or something. So what Jesus is laying out here is, is the person who who loves their own life, who, who worships themselves above all things, is actually destroying themselves. That, that's what self-idolatry will do to you. But, but that is that is the gospel of our own times. That is the gospel of our culture. What should we be controlled by at all times? Your heart. Whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. It will make you happy. It's like, no, what what is it going to do? It's going to destroy you. It's going to lead to to, to heartache and misery. Christ calls us to something else. Idolatry of self will destroy your life. Uh, And contrasted with that, Jesus holds up another person. A person uh, with a different affection and a different outcome. This person in the second half of verse 25 uh, is one who hates his life in this world. Right? And, And... that's strong language, but what Jesus is, is really meaning when he says, he who hates his life, he's not speaking about an, an absolute scale of love and hatred. He's speaking by way of comparison. He's speaking uh, about the the fundamental preference of a person. And the person who hates his life uh, or his soul in this world uh, is a person who gives first place, first priority, not to himself, but to God. His preference is not for his own desires, uh, but to uh, be pleasing to God when it's, Hey, God wants me to do this, but I want to do this. Uh, The person who loves his own life and his own soul in this world says, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. The person who hates his life is going to say, I'm going to yield my life uh, to obey God. And this person does not destroy his life, but indeed it says that he, he keeps it, the idea of guarding it and protecting it, not just for uh, the here and now, but for all of eternity. Uh, Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries uh, who was killed in Ecuador in, in 1956 while striving to, to share the gospel with the Horani people, uh, he had written this in one of his journals. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep uh, to gain what he cannot lose. I'll say that again because it takes a little moment for it to sink in. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. Speaking about his life and the things in this life. To gain what he cannot lose. Speaking of eternal life in Christ. Each and every one of us, In this room, from from the the oldest person to the youngest person, uh, each and every one of us will die someday. Now that that won't brighten up your morning, I know, but, but it will bring some sobriety to it. No matter how hard you try, you will not be able to keep your life in this world. There's a great hymn by Isaac Watts It says, O God, our help in ages past. There's two lines in it. It says, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. All of its sons. If we listen to the the words of Moses in Psalm 90, a wisdom psalm, verse 10 says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. And yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. And in verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Moses is is reflecting upon uh, wisdom there. And what Jesus is is drawing our attention to here is a divine wisdom to help us to understand the brevity of life and that uh, all of our uh, Priorities and affections uh, should be directed towards during the, the brief 70 or 80 years of life, right? And I know when, when we're young, we tend to think like, man, that's a long, long time. But the older we get, we realize like, that's really not that much, really not that much time. It's kind of, kind of winding down. If you love your life in this world, Jesus says you will destroy your life. But if you hate your life in this world, you will keep your life for all eternity. But we could ask, why does Jesus use such strong language? Why speak this way? And uh, and I think partly to to get our attention, right? Now, he uses hyperbole uh, because oftentimes in using hyperbole, you you can draw attention to what matters most. You can you can make uh, truths very very clear in hyperbole. But there's another point to be made here. John MacArthur says this. Why is this language so severe? Why does Christ use such offensive terms? It says because he is as eager to drive the uncommitted away as he is to draw true disciples to himself. He does not want half-hearted people to be deceived into thinking that they are in the kingdom. Unless he is the number one priority... He has not been given his rightful place. In uh, Revelation, when Jesus is writing to uh, the the seven churches, what does he say about those who are lukewarm? He says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. The pattern of a disciple's affections is to place Jesus as the top priority in life. Uh, and, And this means that a disciple... Uh, is willing to lay aside everyone or everything because he or she has seen the supreme value of following Christ. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. Uh, In the beginning of the chapter, he he listed out all of his accomplishments in Judaism. He he had reached the pinnacle. He was a a Pharisee, well-respected, and this is what he says, but whatever things were gained to me, Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Disciples of Jesus place God as the first priority. They hate their life in this world. They are willing to, to lay aside earthly joys and pleasures in order to give preference to uh, the one who has lived and died for them. Now, that is the second pattern that we see here that Jesus is calling all of his disciples to. And the third pattern is seen at the beginning of verse 26. The pattern of a disciple's service is this mandatory obedience to Christ. The very beginning of verse 26 if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Jesus uh, continues not to mince any words, cuts right to the chase. Uh, He says, uh, he he gives a conditional statement, right? Uh, If this takes place, this uh, must uh, be the result. Uh, If this, then that. If anyone would serve him, they must what? Follow him. Uh, And in the Greek, that is uh, a command. That is an imperative. Uh, That is uh, something that uh, must be. Uh, And wherever Jesus is, his servants should be right there with him. Uh, a servant who does not follow uh, and obey his master is showing that uh, he's not really a faithful servant. And maybe he has uh, another master. And can you serve two masters? No. Luke six forty six. Jesus, and again, speaking to people, says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right? Th- those, those two don't match up. If we're calling Jesus Lord and master, then we should be following after him and obeying him. If Christ is our Lord, then we must obey. If Christ is our Master, then we must follow after Him. Now, during during the last couple of years, uh, we've all had uh, the opportunity uh, to look up uh, COVID protocols for a, a given business or uh, an area uh, or uh, an organization. Say you want to visit the zoo, you have to look up, okay, what's the zoo requiring right now? If I want to go to uh, a BSU game, what's, the B- what's uh, Boise State requiring at this point in time? And, and as we, we read those uh, protocols very carefully, and, and you probably noticed uh, a, a difference between two words, right? The word recommended and the word required. Idaho had many, many recommendations, but very few requirements. And other states had only requirements and, and mandates uh, and very few recommendations. And what we have to realize here is that discipleship is not a recommendation. It is a requirement of all Christians. Discipleship is a mandate. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. Discipleship is not a supposed second step in Christianity. As if one first becomes a believer in Jesus and then if he chooses a disciple. From the beginning, discipleship is involved in what it means to be a Christian. Now, and every Christian is and must be a disciple of Jesus. What was the Great Commission? To go and make disciples. Disciples. Go and make learners who will, uh, you will teach to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. If Christ is Savior, He is the one we are commanded to follow. But what does it mean to, to follow Christ? J.C. Ryle says, as the soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follow its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. Faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. And following Christ involves uh, faithfully. Uh, walking behind him that means walking as he walked and walking where he walked there's a double implication that if we are walking behind him and walking as he walked there's uh, the implication number one of of danger right if we're going to follow after him and he his walk in this life led to death we're walking into danger uh, but there's a second implication of blessing Eric Little was an Olympic runner who became a missionary to China. He saw the blessing of following Christ, but he also died as a POW in China uh, or under uh, Japanese-occupied China during World War II. He was acquainted with uh, the danger and the blessing of following Jesus. And he says this, he says, as Christians, I challenge you, have a great aim, have a high standard, make Jesus your ideal, make him an ideal, not merely to be admired, but also to be followed. Hey, Jesus is not Mount Rushmore, right? We go to Mount Rushmore. and What do we do with Mount Rushmore? You stand there and you say, wow. That's impressive. Right, we do that with sequoia trees. Wow, those are big. But you don't follow sequoia trees because they're not going anywhere. But but oftentimes we treat Jesus just as that wow. And we should we should be responding in that way. Uh, he is deserving of that type of adoration. Uh, but he is also deserving of more. He's not just a wow, he's a okay, I'm following him. He he is the ideal, and now I am going to to walk after him, following behind, walking as he walked, and walking where he walked. This is the pattern of discipleship. There's one final pattern that we see here as Jesus is, is laying this out the pattern of a disciple's reward, which is eternal rather than earthly. The second part of verse twenty-six, Jesus says, "If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him." And what we see here is another another conditional statement, right? If this takes place, then this will be the result. And it's actually the the, the same four Greek words uh, that Jesus used at the beginning of verse twenty-six. Uh, but uh, there's a there's a different word order in the Greek In the English. They they put it in the exact same uh, order. If anyone wishes to. Uh, if anyone would serve me, but in the Greek, it's, it's a, a different emphasis and Greek, you, you throw things out of order to create emphasis. And the, the first uh, conditional statement at the beginning of verse 26 says literally in the Greek, if me, anyone would serve. And so the emphasis is upon the me, the emphasis is upon Christ uh, as the one that we are commanded to serve. And the, the second conditional statement in verse 26, one that we're looking at now, it's more along the lines of, if anyone, me, would serve, and the emphasis is upon anyone. Uh, and the emphasis is here upon anyone because this is a promise of rewards. Uh, if anyone would serve Jesus in this life, to all who would hate their life in this world and who would serve Jesus rather than themselves, this is the promise. What does it say? The Father will Honor him, and the honor and rewards which God the Father bestows upon those who serve His Son are far better, infinitely better than anything else we can be pursuing uh, in this life. Listen, listen to First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine. It says, "But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ears and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man." all that god has prepared for those who love him what type of rewards await us in heaven things that will blow your mind things that you can't even imagine and comprehend that's what is waiting for us in heaven and the rewards that we have there are infinitely greater and christ calls our attention here to the promise of heavenly rewards and sometimes we have we're kind of reserved against like but wait isn't that selfish? Should I be pursuing things that are my rewards? It's like, uh, when it comes to heavenly rewards, it's completely different. Now, because in order to obtain them, you serve Christ in the here and now. And Christ commands us to pursue those heavenly rewards. Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So there's a prohibition. Where are we not to store up treasure? Here in this life, but here's the other command, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there. Your heart will be also. What does it look like to be motivated by heavenly eternal rewards? Well, if you turn with me over to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, would encourage you to, to read that chapter this week commonly known as the hall of faith. We get to see that the testimony of saints who have gone before us, and we get to see their faith in their lives. Look at me beginning in verse 24 of Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin regarding the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward what what had Moses fixed his eyes upon in this life eternal rewards he wasn't living for the the here and now what is greater than the pleasures of sin What is greater than the treasures of this life? Christ is. He himself is our reward, and he will give us uh, rewards in heaven in addition to himself. And as we consider what to do with our fleeting lives, the, the 70 or 80 years that are going to go like that, the wise disciple of Christ will consider how to obtain eternal rewards rather than earthly rewards going back to that paradox i spoke about earlier right justification is free sanctification costs us everything and speaking about uh salvation and being in the kingdom of god in matthew chapter 13 jesus said this the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And that's how we are to view Christ as his disciples. Christ is uh, who is supremely worthy. And we must see and behold his infinite worth, and when we do, see and behold him for all that he is. Then we're willing to to lay aside the pleasures and the treasures of this life for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. These are the the patterns of discipleship that we've seen in salvation, death before life, in affections. uh, We are to deny self and prefer Christ in service, mandatory obedience to Christ and in rewards uh, eternal rather than earthly. These patterns show us the cost of true discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a man who uh, went back into Nazi Germany to be able to uh, to pastor uh, his people, ended up uh, going to to prison and uh, ultimately being martyred. Uh, But he said, "Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ." Then there is Neil Postman. Neil Postman is, is not a believer. Uh, he, he is a uh, an unbeliever, but but he he rightly understands Christianity. Listen to this unbeliever looking upon Christianity. Look at, listen to what he says. I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. And when it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. See, he, he has read the Bible and he's understood what Jesus is, is teaching, what, he is Jesus, what Jesus is calling disciples to. And he's come to an accurate conclusion. We must come to that same conclusion. Well, but where Neil Postman said, I understand that, but I'm not willing to, to follow, we must be those who are willing to, to follow. We must be those who are willing to walk in the patterns of discipleship that Jesus lays out for us here. Salvation in Christ is offered to us freely. So, what should we do? Look to Christ in faith. If you you haven't done that, I would urge you to do so. You can come speak with me. You can speak to the person who invited you this morning. but, But look to Jesus in faith. It is worth it. It's absolutely free. Doesn't mean it's worthless. It's the difference between free and worthless. But at the same time, count the cost. It's the most important decision that you'll ever make in life. And you need to understand what it entails, what Christ is calling us to. The cost is high, but it is worth it. Indeed, there is nothing more valuable in this life than following Jesus.